Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. Today, my guest is David Castillo, who, if you're not familiar with David, David is a producer and mixing engineer based out of Sweden. He works on a lot of amazing metal records. He's worked with some really big bands such as Opeth, Whitechapel, Catatonia, Carcass, Dark Tranquility, Leprous, and so many more. And in addition to that, he also is a co-owner of Studio Grandal. And David has worked on some incredible records, and inside of this interview, we get into his process, and we talk a lot about the art of working with mixes that have lots of layers to them, and how to deal with getting the right balance of frequencies when it comes to your kick, your bass, your guitars, your pads, your strings, all of that kind of stuff, making sure that everything fits in the context of your mix, and that it all feels balanced as far as the low end, and as far as the top end, and all that stuff too. And then we talk about how you can take those tracks even further and create some depth and some width and some additional size so that your mix feels really big yet really clear as well. So in this episode, I think you're going to find so much good information. David does a really great job of explaining his process, and I think you're going to find it really helpful. So let's just jump right into the interview. David Castillo, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. No problem. The first question I always ask everyone whenever they're on here is for people who might not know you, who might not know your story and how you got into music and ultimately into production and mixing. Can you give us that background and let us know how you got there? Yeah, I'll try to make it as short as possible. As much detail uh, as you want. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm based out of, well, I'm born in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, so this is where I started and still work out of. And... I got into music like most probably like playing in a band. Started playing guitar when I was maybe I think I got my first electric guitar when I was fourteen, and then what you probably would call high school when I was sixteen, I did uh, my first internship and like I just looked up all the studios in Stockholm through the yellow pages and just gave them yeah a call and see whoever wanted me as an intern so it was a lot of calls because back then there was tons of studios in Stockholm uh, which is not the case anymore uh, and there was this one studio that said yeah sure come by on Monday or whatever and uh, they took me in and I did my first I think it was like six weeks like uh, as an intern and uh, after that they hired me uh, like an by our rate so when whenever they needed me weekends evenings or whatever i i came in there and became like their assistant or engineer because the studio was uh, ran by a, a songwriter who was blind or he still is <laughs> but yeah uh so and he was like of course a little bit slower but he was it's amazing watching him working the console, even the computer, tape machines, whatever, completely blind. Uh, so, in the, I've, I guess I was just in the beginning more his eyes and make things quicker and make sessions work a little bit faster. But he trusted in me. I put so much trust in me with like early project. I was 16 years old only, and still he gave me recordings and started mixing for him so i probably worked with him on and off mostly like up till i was 20 but even until i was 25 i guess i st still did some work for him so i did that till i finished high school like i did there was like one internship every year so right. i did my interns there and stayed as working there so when I graduated from high school, I took like one year off playing music and working at that studio. Even worked three months at IKEA here in Stockholm. So, and yeah, after that, I was looking for like schools, audio engineering schools. So I went 
to another like a, a city two hours from Stockholm and study for one year, which was to me it was very like good school because you had so much time in the studio. You could book like we had two bigger studios at the school and we could book them every evening after our our normal day. And the, the second semester, you say, or yeah, like. Uh, we went into even a like a bigger commercial studio and we spent like two days a week there and we can book that for sessions as well so it was a lot of actual studio time which i think a lot of schools are lacking it's so much theory and stuff and i think you need to mix them in the beginning it's good to to learn and read all the theory but you learn them a lot better and faster if you can put them to practice right away so so that year was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. And it's also like where I met, met uh, who became kind of my mentor in the beginning, I would say, because he moved up and started leasing the studio we were going to this second semester. So he became my teacher and he's, he was, his name is Jens Bogren. Uh, he's a metal yeah, he's producer, mixer and engineer like myself and it started out like I probably picked up on me being a good student or something because I think when I went to that school I was like me and one other guy in my class that had some experience from engineering actually the rest of them were just musicians that wanted to learn audio production or so I almost became like a teacher to my to my classmates. So, <laughs> and he probably picked up on that and wanted to continue working with me. And he gave me a really good price for the studio. So for me, it was worth because I did freelancing at the same time. So for me, it was worth going like those two hours to that studio because the price was so much better what I could get in Stockholm. And it was a really big barn where you could live and work at when you were that young you were working 24 7 so you slept for a few hours back to work so but that's the time to do it right when you when you're not as uh financially bound to all sorts of bills and all that kind of stuff it's like if, if you can make it happen just you put, put it in yeah. that time if you know you want it right now i'm too tired like if i go <laughs> for like a few days like that it's like oh, i can't do this anymore <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like uh, like I could when I was a kid. But with that said, I, I started really early, I guess. Because, yeah. yeah, I was working with Jens on some projects together and I also did my own in like his studio. And then we, he asked me to be like a front of house assistant on a tour for Catatonia, like a Swedish... Uh, Mm-hmm. Met- prog metal or metal band or and I think it was like two weeks or maybe even just a week before the tour was about to start he called me and said like I have so much bookings in the studio I don't think it's the, the truth I think he got like cold feet or whatever <laughs> to go <laughs> six weeks on the road with the crazy guys <laughs> so he just asked me, like, I have so much bookings. I think I need to stay in the studio. Could you do this, like, front of house gig on your own? You can, like, you don't, you can step up from being just an assistant on tour and do it yourself. And I said, yeah, why not? I was, of course, nervous. I was 21 at the time, I think. And I haven't met the guys. I think I've seen, like, two guys at the studio because they mixed the album with Jens prior to that tour that's how they met mm. uh, so I, I probably just said hi to two of them and then i went straight on the the nightliner here and just said hello to everyone and went on the road for six weeks i think that's and amazing. it was yeah it was a little bit nerve-wracking in the beginning probably but that's and how had, you learn at, at that point had you done any sort of live sound or was it just like all studio work mostly studio work of course there's been some live stuff but not like real big venues or proper stuff like that but at the same time back then it was all analog consoles 
uh, when I started doing front of house for like for real, they, that's when like the digital consoles started. Yeah, coming out on the scene. So, and I I worked on uh, analog consoles at the studio, so it's not like a big difference in that way. Like, of course, yeah, because with the so, digital consoles, it's like every every venue if they have a different digital board you're, you're kind of learning a new technology every single time right whereas with the analog thing it's kind of the same i mean I yeah guess at, at the fun at the basis of all of them they're all kind of the same but you just have to learn the the routing or the software to, to make it work right yeah and for me it's since i'm not, not like i've done i stopped doing uh, touring at like 2009 i think and after that i've done some like some friends bands like they ask me can you do this festival or our normal like our guy can't do this one or and i do a, a few one-offs and it's always like so nerve-wracking when there's a digital console i've never seen or you know <laughs> if you're in in it and you have your scene on a thumb drive or whatever you can bring and you do it all the time it's a different story but sitting in the studio and just do a one-off and there's a console you've never seen and you have like 10 minutes to do a line check on a big huge festival <laughs> uh, to me that i still think it's unless you do a proper pro- pre-production you can bring your own scenes and everything to that console i still think it's i'm way faster on a analog one yeah that makes sense if you haven't like seen the console or anything it's just if you know one analog console you know them all kind of Mm -hmm. the digital one i feel it's a little bit more like learning a new door every time (laughs) and you can't do so many things at the same time but once you know them in and out they're really good of course yeah so it's depending on but it's kind of like you said it's like the 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 real benefit to all of those digital boards is that you can bring in your scenes and save your settings and like so yeah if you're going venue to venue and they have the same boards as you then it's just as easy as loading up a file and you're done but otherwise you're, yeah you're you're kind of just doing one thing at a time it's slow you're learning the process you're learning the the, the windows and all that kind of stuff and yeah it can it can definitely be very nerve-wracking especially when you only have 10 minutes to make everything sound good right <laughs> yeah i remember it was one time in Spain, I think it was like a bullfighting arena. There was a digital console. Like this was probably the last few years I, I toured, and I don't know why. If it was the guy before me that wanted to fuck with me, and or if it was just an error by the console, but it was like a factory uh, delete setup on the console oh. when I when I arrived. So th- there was no routing whatsoever. And they were very strict on the time. So I think it took like three songs before the lead vocal mic was routing routed out to the PA. Oh wow! So that, that was the <laughs> yeah the nightmare story of digital consoles and oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that's where I started. After that tour, I started working with Catatonia, both in the studio and live for many years. And that's probably set the road for me with other bands and I've been busy ever since. That's amazing. Do you feel like having that experience doing the live sound stuff? Like obviously you were you were very comfortable and familiar with stuff in the studio world, but do you feel like after having gone through those tours and working on the digital boards and being tight for time every night, do you feel like that made you a faster engineer in the studio as well? I'm not sure. Like I probably without thinking about it like so there's so very much different stress in the studio like true the, the live stress i think it's some kind of good stress you're very stressed for one hour two hours or whatever and then it's over and you can relax in the studio it's more like the pressure or it's more about that kind of stress more than like oh, we need to be dead on with this sound in five minutes or whatever you know it's completely different situations how, yeah. how you handle the stress and i think that the live stress is more healthy <laughs> in, <laughs> in the long run but at the same time of course you bring other stuff with you both ways i think i brought a lot from the studio that i 
didn't see a lot of people do back then, like parallel compre- compression on drums or whatever. Like I treated the live mix very much as I would on a studio mix on my console at the studio. So I think you learn both ways. Like you bring stuff from the live side into the studio and the other way around. Yeah. And so how do you, with those stresses of either working in live or working in the studio and having this expectation put on you that, you know, this needs to sound perfect by the band or by the people that are listening to these records, how do you cope with that stress? I I think it's something that it's usually stressful in the beginning when you work with a new band. Like, for example, when I worked with Carcass, which is like kind of legends, like you don't want to fuck up their <laughs> reputation or you don't want to destroy a band like that. You wanted, wanted them to sound good and maybe modern because it's still, it's now the album, it's done, you know, it's not 30 years ago, but you still want to keep them very much true to their original sound and don't destroy it. So it's stressful in the beginning, but then usually depending on the band, it's, if they are chill, the situation and everything, you calm down pretty quick. And then it's always very stressful in the very end when you deliver like the final mixes, it's always stressful. Because mm-hmm. that's the first time you actually get to hear the result of your, if you've been, like for the Carcass album, we worked for one year on and off. So it's, and then it took two year, two years later, they released it. So it was like a, free free year project (laughs) (laughs) do you feel do you feel like with that kind of experience of working on a band that is well established and that has a sound like obviously yeah there there's that kind of pressure to keep it at the same standards you know as all their previous records but as far as getting those results do you feel like a lot of the work really just came from the band being the band or did you feel like uh, you know it was it put a lot of pressure on you as a mixer to like shape the sound or like I guess, I guess like, like was, were the results more from the band or more from your work, do you feel? I hope it's both. Like, like you contribute with something that's unique and doing things your way, but still at the same time stay true to the band. Like they are still the songwriters and they are the personalities behind it. So I always want to work with the band and like, a member in the band more than like being a producer and the band and we're fighting or whatever yeah, it's, yeah. I think the best work is when you get to work as a good team like you you have trust both ways and you have fun with it I think of that's course. yeah the most fun to work and usually I've it's the best results of course and I assume that with a project like that, or maybe all of your projects, you're you're discussing with the band what the vision is going into the projects, and you know how where you're trying to go with it, so that everyone's on the same page, right? Yeah, I always, uh, yeah, for like full productions, and when you know, we, like for Carcass, it was a little bit special because we didn't know, or I didn't know in the beginning how much how involved I would be because we just planned doing the drums because I worked with the drummer before, like a couple months earlier, and he wanted to do the drums with me. And it was the first time I met the other two guys, Bill and Jeff. So, and after that week, of, I think they liked working with me. So we continued and did the rest of the album together and I got the mix as well and yeah, did everything. So that was a little bit special, but otherwise, of course, you have meetings and what? why do you want to work with me and what can I bring to you or, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's super important to, to have those conversations. Do you, Have you ever had those kind, of, those kind of conversations where you're like, you realize in the moment, like, I'm maybe not the right guy for this. Like, has that kind of situation come up before? Yeah, like, usually it's when it comes to mixing, like, if there's a band that are approaches me and I listen to the previous album and it's very far from like my style or sound or whatever and then then I always a little bit worried like do you want your new album to be sounding like this then I'm probably not the right guy uh, if you want 
if you come to me because you want something different, because you heard stuff I've done and you want to be sounding more like that, then you then you're at the right yeah. place. <laughs> and so, but usually that happens more in when it comes to mixing. I think production is you have more meetings about it or. And I always approached a little bit of both. Like production, you can always plan it, but just at some level, especially if the first time you ever work with a band. So you have to take it on the fly. And maybe your initial initial plan, you you strive far away from it at the end. Like when you listen to the end results, like you remember we went for this lo-fi approach, but we turned out with this. And so you, you have to work with what you get in the studio as well so you can only plan as much i i think and it's a little bit the same with the mixing i even if you band sense references and stuff i listen a little bit to them but i always prefer to do my mix first and send it to the band and then they can come with feedback Mm -hmm. because i don't want to be listening too much to other stuff i want to do my thing and trust that like what I like and what I can bring out of the band and then they can come with some feedback I think it's a better approach than trying to be something you're not yeah that's fair yeah because people are people are hiring you because they see you as an artist in your own way and you know they're looking for your take on it they're looking for your um your personal sound or your vision for for what they hear so uh you know I think based on your track record and obviously all the records that you've worked on before, people are going to hear those things and have a sense of what your work sounds like. So if that's in their ballpark, then yeah, you're in the, they're in the right place to work with you, right? Yeah. And I think that's a little bit of a mistake by some bands. Like they want to record at that studio or whatever instead of pick the guy that you think you're going to trust and that's done a lot of albums you like and not only like you like the albums, but you think he can bring you to the next level. Because there's a lot of bands like like we did this previous album with this guy and didn't turn out how, how we wanted. And like I could immediately tell them like, why did you pick this guy? If you were looking <laughs> for this, you went to the wrong guy and said you can't blame him. Blame your decision on who you worked with. I think Fans overall need to think a little bit more about not just entering a good studio or like choose the people you you want to work with for different reasons, both for maybe the sound and where you can bring it musically, and also something someone you're comfortable working with. Like you spend so much time together, it should be like a relaxed environment. I think. Hundred percent. Yeah, I think that that's so important, and it kind of goes back to what you and I were chatting about before we started this, the the actual recording, of the idea of like there's no one way to do everything. So it's not like every producer just knows the one way to make everybody's record sound good. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's it has to do with vision as well, and and what you know how people like to treat their records, and you know how loud they like their guitars, or how distorted they like things, or you know like that's those are kind of the personal tastes that every engineer every producer is going to have and and, you know that's ultimately going to be something that you're getting when you hire someone to work on your record so you know picking picking the people that have that good track record that you like you like the majority of their records that's usually the way to go yeah and uh, also looking for something like i guess at least most producers if you come to them they don't want to be making your previous album again they want to do bring something new to the table and do it a little bit different so yeah go back to the other guy if you you want the exact same record yeah exactly so (laughs) the most fun as a producer is when the band is kind of open-minded and wanted to try new things and sound a little bit different than the previous album and as a fan as well i think it's as long as the is the same quality and it's just different i think it's good because it's repeating yourself it's i think it's boring for both the band and the fans of course yeah yeah um one band that you had mentioned earlier uh was catatonia and you had mentioned how you you started on the road with them doing live sound um and then you eventually worked with them on their records and i have to say that the album night is a new day like man that album sounds so good 
it's you know it's it's such a big record it's it's like huge wide like clear there's so much depth um and it kind of makes sense now that i mean it, to me it's interesting now that i know that you worked on their live side because i feel like that record in a lot of ways sounds like you're watching a band in like this big place it's it sounds so big and like yeah just like like it sounds like you're in a space with them uh which i love about that record um but I'm also curious to know, like, that record also has a lot of different layers to it, especially between, like, the drums, bass, guitar, vocals, pads, strings, all that kind of stuff. So when it comes to working on records that have so many layers to them like that, what's your normal thought process for determining where everything's going to fit in the context of the mix? And, and like, you know, making sure that you maintain that clarity amongst all the instruments. It's a little bit like that album is... I kind of hired a friend of mine that we did a lot of uh, remixes for catatonia together and he did a lot of the the keyboard stuff on night is new day and even dead and kings and he continued working with them after me even so and he brought tons of layers you know so it's a lot as a producer you need to get rid of like 80 percent probably of what he sent like keyboard wise and so it's so much in the arrangement more than mixing and sculpting the right sounds because I, I, that album I, what I recall it was very fast mix because I did all the production and to me that's where you you set the tone it's not really in the mix it's in the production like arrangement and choosing the right sound together like you do set the rhythm guitar sound and then the lead sounds need to fit with that sound so you, you sculpt everything around every sound you already have so you putting on layers that you know will fit you just you don't record a sound that feels like it's this is going to be fighting in a mix mm -hmm. so let's not record this sound like this we need to tweak it somehow and it's a lot of stuff it's made uh, during the yeah the production and recording so if you do a well like a great work with that it's should be easy mixing it later on gotcha so would you start with like the bed tracks like the guitar bass drums vocals and and then just add those keys and all that other stuff afterwards like were, like those were the primary instruments and then everything else is just kind of adding texture is that the general idea yeah for most parts like there were parts we of course knew from the beginning here it's gonna be the keyboards is very important like they're gonna be the main thing here or they're gonna be very important other parts it's just we're they're here to add some vibe or atmosphere or like bring that coldness of vibe yeah like a feeling to it more than actual being a, like it's more like texture than being like a sound up front so it's a little bit different depending on the parts but the album was done kind of the traditional way we started with drums which we did in another studio in stockholm and then we did everything else in my my previous studio here in Stockholm. So yeah, rhythm guitars, lead guitars, vocals, and then we, of course we did some keyboards at the studio as well. And then my friend did a lot of at his studio and sent them in, and we went through those. And that's cool. I like that. I love that approach because I think. So many people just listen to tracks in isolation when they're recording and it's like, oh, I got this really cool pad sound or this really cool guitar sound or whatever. And they're not listening to it in the context of the mix. So, you know, to your point, it's just like start with the most important elements of the mix and then dial in when you're recording. Be be aware of how it all fits into the rest of the tracks and start shaping those sounds right at the source rather than having to do it in the mix later on. Yeah. And and pick what's important like what's going to be lead in this part and make sure you make that sound good right away so you don't because i think what i feel like a lot of times when i get stuff for mixing it's there's really no thought about why those layers are there it's like maybe they think ah i didn't nail the guitar lead as good as i wanted so let's put three more keyboard layers to cover it up <laughs> and then i think it's you should go back and redo that guitar part till you're happy with it so you maybe don't need all the other layers so yeah it's a lot 
more like sculpting everything right away than yeah. waiting for the mix because you never know what you're going to turn out with and it's going to be a mess mixing it. Absolutely. You also brought up another interesting point of the idea of getting rid of layers as well. You know, when you have multiple tracks or, or lots of different ideas that you're just trying to stack into the mix, you know, getting rid of layers is sometimes the most important thing in order to get that clarity. So how do you typically go about trimming those layers and like deciding what's best and, and which ones to keep, which ones to get rid of? Because I think there's a lot of people that like feel like if they get a track to mix and there's all these layers that they have to keep it all. But sometimes, you know, to your point, it's, it's not the way to do it. Yeah. You need to figure out what what you think is the important. Hopefully the band is going to think the same what's important in a part. Because usually I think you can listen to like three three things at the same time pretty much more than that. And you lose focus and the rest is not that important. It's more like background layers at that point. So you need to figure out what's the good stuff. And sometimes it could be different what the band thinks. Like uh, we thought this choir was really cool in this part or whatever. And But for me as a listener, like for the first time I hear it when I start mixing, it feels like for me it's obvious like, yeah, the guitar part here is it's the main thing. And the other is just adding texture. So trust your instincts and your feeling and try it your way first. And then if the band has a strong feeling towards another way or the producer, of course you you have to go with that. It's in the end, it's the band and the, the producer's album. And as a mixer, you just have to make it work and sound good. For sure. And I think that that also brings up another good point of just like listening to the record as a fan, listening to it as the audience and not thinking about it from the perspective of the band. Because, I mean, there's so many people that, you know, guitar player, drummer, whatever, it doesn't matter what it, whatever instrument the person plays, like people tend to want to hear more of their own instrument in the mix. So like, you know, if the guitar player has got all these different licks and all that, like they might think that they're the coolest thing ever, but then you're like, no, no, no. Like the audience doesn't care about this. This is more, this is boring. This is the more important part. Sometimes you have to kind of take that step back and and be like, okay, what's actually the coolest part of the song here? Yeah. And I think it comes a little bit with experiencing maybe growing up. And for me, it's always as a producer, when you're on the other side, and not in the band's band dynamic and everything. It's always what's best for the song. If it's for the guys to play the easiest parts ever and it makes the song better, I'm all for it. It's like being an ego and even if I'm in mostly the band most of the bands I work with is prog bands. So it's usually very technical and it's still gonna be complicated, you know. Yeah. And yeah, it's even mostly, easy to um, those guys is complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and it's usually in with the, the young bands when they do their first albums, like they want to prove prove themselves, and then later on, it's like they understand that that doesn't matter in the end. Like, make, let's make the song as good as possible, and if I can come up with something complicated and it sounds good for the song, fine. But it's not like you have to so it's being i guess it's called being musical <laughs> with your <laughs> instrument <laughs> maybe no, i love that no it's it's so true i definitely do feel like i have experienced the same thing in the studio with a lot of new bands it's just like like you said it's it's people have to prove themselves and they sometimes need to hear that like less is more sometimes yeah. and, and and the majority of people listening to your record are not technical prog musicians half the time it's it's people who just love the sound of music so it's like whatever's the most interesting or the coolest sounding is all that matters not yeah. how, how technically good it is and be a little bit open-minded and be ready to kill your darlings because you could do like an amazing drum fill but if it doesn't fit the song like if you really actually listen to it together with the music doesn't make sense it's an amazing drum fill keep it in your storage like for later <laughs> for another song but in this song it a simple fill would be better and then i think you always should go with that of course yeah yeah uh well another, another follow-up question that i had to that catatonia album 
that I wanted that I was curious about was would you happen to remember what your bass chain was like for songs like Forsaker or Inheritance? Like to me, like the bass on those songs sounds incredible. Like you can feel the super subby low stuff, but yet they're so defined in the upper range. So I'm just curious, like, you know, what you might have done to get those kind of tones. Wow. It's been a, so long ago. Yeah, it's a longer <laughs> old record, yeah, for sure. But I think we used to if I recall right, he was playing in an EBS live so he probably brought the ebs stuff to the studio and i was never actually a fan of it like what what they brought for within the other the the, act like the the current bass player for the next album dead and kings was also ebs but it was like their cheapest uh, bass head and that was the first bass head from ebs that i really liked the other one was always too clean or didn't have that grit I was looking for but I don't remember I think he played Warwick basses and probably an EBS I think I have somewhere I have pictures <laughs> of it but yeah and I probably need to open the session to to look at it again it's all good yeah no I, I just thought that that those those songs in particular on that album to me just really stood out because I felt like I, I actually appreciated the clean part of it like i felt like I, I was hearing so much low end but it it was still super clean and detailed and defined in the top end and and that, that's why i was curious about it. it just it just sounded like yeah it 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 almost sounded like there was like two layers to it and, and to some degree where it was like you had that fullness but like there's higher up on the neck or something like that you know or like it was really really defined and clear so um yeah, yeah I was curious probably have like a parallel thing with the low end being clean and the, the higher stuff being distorted and also, it's a very much to blend with the guitars. It's a lot of low end in the rhythm guitars. So I think it's combination of them together. Yeah. Is that something that you do often with like the parallel bass? Yeah. And uh, even like, I don't remember if I did it on that, but a lot of times I do like stereo bass as well. So I have like, maybe not in all parts, but maybe the choruses or whatever, I could have a stereo distortion or whatever in with the bass as well so you have like more grit and stuff coming from the sides and have the low end and the, the cleaner stuff in the center that's cool so so with a situation like that do you just typically duplicate your cleaner track and then add the saturation to it and pan that hard left and right and make your stereo track out of it that way yeah or just do a send to or to the two, two, two buses like and yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Do you typically record your basses with uh, like DI only, or do you use amps in combination with everything? I would say ninety percent only amps. Only uh, amps, okay. Yeah, but I could do it in layers with amps. You know, I do one pass with a clean amp, and then I do another sound like a distorted one, but reamped then or whatever, like. I record one sound and then I reamp the other and blend them together. Gotcha. So it's not it's not like actually two different performances that are like a, like a double take. It's it's actually just combining different amp sounds based yeah, exactly. off of one track. That's very cool. So I track it with one sound and then I use that DI to reamp with a different sound. And even sometimes I have two bass amps at the same time, so I don't have to reamp it. So you create the blend right away. I like that. I, I definitely think that that's something that is, you know, when you have the ability to do that and you can, you have the gear to have a really nice clean tone, a nice dirty tone, like why not see what you get out of it, right? And you can get yeah. that definition. Even sometimes when you have that saturation and it's like super distorted, sometimes even that clean layer, like a cleaner layer underneath just gives you that extra attack definition, you know? Yeah. And sometimes I even record like three bass, bass sounds and then I do like an arrangement with them like, the verses is only this amp and this part is all three together or only the distorted you know go through each song and create us the the final bass sound that way very cool another another point that you'd mentioned earlier was the idea of how the low end of the bass was kind of working with the low end of the guitar and i feel like with a lot of the bands you work on you tend to work on a lot of stuff that is down tuned and you know like sounds pretty heavy 
And I know that it can, it can often feel like a bit of a challenge to get the low end of the bass to work properly with the guitar and feel balanced between everything. So do you have any tips for how to get the low end sounding tight between them? What I do is a little bit like you have to pick what you want to be lowest, if it's going to be the bass or the kick drum. And mostly for me, it's the kick drum that it's underneath the bass. And then do a little bit of sculpting around and it's only like you do it by ear listening to the kick and bass together like you want to hear the punch in the bass but still make you want to keep that kick being big and i also do a little bit of uh, like side chaining so the the bass dips a little bit just a tiny bit on every kick hit so it just makes the kick sound fuller and bigger without turning up the low end too much you know the only difference when I have it in and out, you hear the the kick sounding lower, lower pitched and bigger, without destroying the bass sound. Gotcha. And then what about with guitars and like we're finding that low end balance between the guitar and the bass? Yeah, actually, I have the guitars pretty low. Like a lot of them could be around the bass frequencies, but just finding that balance and controlling it because it could be a lot, but it as long as it's like controlled I think in the very low stuff and then more like the low mids I think it's the more important part where you need needs to move to make some to get that energy so I, I like to control maybe the very low end stuff and have the low mids more moving around and gotcha so would you tend to lean on like a dynamic EQ or something like that in those kind of situations yeah, it could be a or a, like a multiband, like you do a little bit of compression on the lowest stuff, or just on some frequencies where you have like some resonance in the low end, depending on the tuning and key of the song and everything. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So th- then that kind of ties into you had mentioned drums, and it kind of ties into one of the other questions I had for you, which was that I'm curious to get your take with um, with a lot of tracks that have like faster tempos and maybe blast beats and that kind of stuff. I feel like there's always a, there's always a bit of a struggle or between getting the balance of like the room sound and the ambience with your drums. And then, you know, with fast stuff, it's it's a lot harder to keep that because it's just so fast and it could just easily get very muddy. So I'm just curious to know, like, what's your normal approach to uh, working with drums that have you know, either blast beats or fast double kicks? Like, how do you tend to deal with ambience and, and getting size out of your stuff? Is it sort of the same idea where you're you're just kind of using some sort of multi-band thing to just squash it squash down some of the dynamics in certain spots or automation or no not really like i think most of it is done like if we talk about recording i do a lot of at the recording and maybe depending on if it's very fast kicks and stuff i might muffle the kicks in the room mics to like isolate them a little bit so it's not taking over everything in the room mics and pick a snare that it's as loud as possible in the room mics and maybe also symbols that are a little bit darker or not as loud so, but all that you need to balance with the drummer of course the pitch of the drums everything like that it's a blend of the gear and the, the drummer yeah to make to make it sound balanced in the end and then when it comes to mixing, I've done it, of course, depending on the the kick sound, if it's very fast kicks, it could be overwhelming in the low end. So you have either doing like a automation on the EQ for those parts, or like a lot of times if I feel like it's more like a level thing, just bring them down during faster parts because they get louder. And I always start there, and then I've, if I feel like oh, it's still too much low end, I, I use an EQ to do an automation on those parts. But most of the times, you get re- like if you have a controlled low end and the kick sound, a lot of times you get away with just using the balance and level. Because I still think like if you come to a part where it's a lot of double kicks should be a little bit muddy or whatever it's it's like the natural way it plays a lot of fast kicks of course it's gonna be more low end now so it, i want to feel that a little bit of course not destroying the mix or anything but i don't i'm not worried if you feel like this 
a little bit more low end because that's the effect I'm looking for when you add double bass drum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's 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 supposed to be not just clickiness. It's like adding a lot of like low end feel and energy and creating that crazy pulse to it. You know? Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's cool. So it sounds like you're definitely using a lot of automation throughout your mixes, right? Yeah, I think level is, of course, the most important part of a of a mix. So start like always starting with levels, because there's a lot of times if you're listening to something very loud, you want to EQ it, and then you bring it to the actual where it should sit in a mix, and it, you feel like it's fine. I don't need to touch this sound. It's it's great as it is at this level. So. The levels always comes first to me. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I feel like a lot of a uh, lot of people when they get into mixing records for the first time, it's like they don't even know the power of automation. And it's like so many people just create great static mixes, you know, dial in their EQ and they try to get it as best as they can. But there is so much power to automation. And you know, when you do accent certain things or you use plugins or whatever, and, and you automate all that kind of stuff, you can create so much more movement in the mix. So I'm curious. I'm curious to get your idea, like your. Like what, how do you normally approach automation in your mixes? Like, is it something that's kind of at the end of your stage, like at the end of your mixing process and then you kind of refine or are you automating as you're in the middle of a mix? Like, do you have, do you have any sort of set workflow like that? It's a little bit of both. Like I always start with the drums and the important stuff, which is mostly vocals. Uh, so I have like a, try to get the vocals to a 80, 90% where they should be. And and also the drums, starting with those, because those are the sounds that needs to be mostly controlled in the mix, I would say. When you have that done, everything else is easier to find your space for. So what I, I usually do, a pass with the drums and figure out levels so they sound good first, like in between the instrument. Like the, the ride is not crazy loud in this part, it's not super quiet, too quiet in that part. So I just level them so I have the foundation at a decent level first. And then I start bringing in stuff and working from the beginning of the song to the end, like building it up. And then at the end, I do like the, the final passes with automation, like listening through the song and do them on the fly a little bit. Gotcha. So, th- so like what kind of things do you typically find yourself boosting or cutting with automation? I would say 90% is levels, like doing vocal rides or guitars, drums, like doing a lot of volume automation. And then it, then it's more specific stuff, like this phrase of the world, it's a little bit too much low end. So you do automation on the EQ for that. And yeah, st- different stuff like that, bring in and out effects, a lot of automation yeah, on effects. The other, like... EQ stuff, it's more like problem solving. Like if there's issues you want to fix, I tend to go to automation or EQ unless there's like a creative thing where you want to create a filter thing or something like that. Yeah, that's more of a specific effect in time in in the song. Yeah. Yeah. And then as far as the volume side of things go, is it typically things like boosting choruses or any of that kind of thing? Yeah, it could be, depending on the arrangements, of course. If it's a good arrangement, it would fall to its place by itself a little bit. Like, the chorus should feel bigger, louder uh, on its own, and you just help it a little bit in a mix. Other times, it's it's not the case, and you you need to bring a very small chorus to sound bigger than a big verse or whatever. So it could be just writing the master level a little bit and doing it a little bit wider and also keeping the verses a little bit smaller, maybe less low end, things like that, less low end, high end. So the choruses sounds bigger, louder and wider. Yeah. Yeah. I love that approach. It's just like being cognizant of the idea of, you know, what, how much low end you have in the, in the verse or the pre-chorus or that kind of thing. And just, when you're mindful of that thing, you, mindful of those things, you you can build your arrangement up so that it, yeah, like you said, it just takes care of itself. And, you know, the choruses just feel big because they are big. They're not, yeah. you know, there's no trickery or anything like that going into it. 
Because a lot of times I also start with the chorus to set like this is gonna be the peak of the song, make it as big as I can, and or if it's gonna be big, uh, that's what I go for. And then you have to work around with other parts. Like maybe you have to make the verse a lot smaller sounding than what you could. You could make it bigger, but it's also gonna make the choruses not sound as big. So know when you need to make things smaller as well. That's a really good point. And and also know how far is too far sometimes with that, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Sure there's, I'm sure there's people listening to this right now thinking like, oh, so all I need to do is just roll off a bunch of low end on the master bus in my verses and then my chorus will sound bigger. But <laughs> that may work, but you might also go too far if, if you if, Yeah, if usually you go too it's far. <laughs> tiny things like bring in the guitar pan a little bit and maybe keep one guitar in the verse instead of two. It's like a lot of times it's just a dB lower of the, like level wise on the bass or and the drums it's just really small things that in the end make everything glue together but still sound bigger smaller or whatever yeah because if if you do it like take it too far it's gonna be when the chorus comes it's gonna be hitting too hard and the verse if you go for a ride in your car and you won't hear the verses or whatever you know it's going to be so <laughs> tiny and far off dynamic wise so it's all about finding that balance of course well i love that suggestion that you made there of you know maybe just using one guitar in the verse instead of you know having everything hit all the time at, at 100 you know like sometimes it is just a matter of like being strategic from an instrumentation standpoint of you know how many when you're going to double track things or when you're going to have just a one layer and you know what kind of guitar tone you're going to have in the verse versus the chorus and that kind of thing maybe maybe change everything up in the chorus and you have just you know whole new settings but whatever ultimately makes you get that size that you need right yeah and it's sometimes it's just an effect thing you could have one guitar and you could have the delay on the other side or reverb on the other side and still sounds big and vibey without taking up too much space Mm -hmm. so many different approaches yeah, of course, of course. And I, I do think that there's something to be said for like creating balance. Like your, your mix needs to feel balanced. It can't, you know, generally if you're going to have one guitar, it's like figuring out the way to make it seem like the mix isn't all heavy on the left side or something like that. You know, like sometimes, like you said, maybe you have to offset it with a little bit of a delay or a verb or something on the other side to make it feel like there's a little bit of evenness throughout the mix, but it's not as big as the chorus where you got like new new guitars introduced and everything's kind of blasting out both speakers, right? Yeah, and I'm very, I try to work on on myself, like I need to have it very balanced between left and right. And a friend of mine said something that I try to think about, like when I heard his mix, it's like, ah, it's very much left heavy on the verses or whatever. And he said, ah, I don't care about that. As long as overall from the start and to the end of the song, it's over time, it's balanced. So it mm. could be like very left heavy in one verse. It could be the pre-chorus could be right heavy, and then the chorus is more even. You know, it's yeah, and it, it and it's something to think about a little bit. Like I always before maybe try to make it always sounding the same, like left right. Now it's more sculpting. Like if you have the hi hat on one side, you have to find another sound on the other side to balance that out but it doesn't have to be the same sound, you know, on both mm-hmm. sides. It's, I think it sounds bigger if you create different sounds. To, like the keyboard could be a mono keyboard on one side and the other side could be a guitar. And it's going to sound bigger than having two guitars and a stereo keyboard. For sure. And, and you brought up a good point too of if you do have it a little bit more like left heavy at one point and then you have it right heavy at another that that's sometimes fine it's just like to your point you it has to make the overall mix has to feel balanced and it has to have that yeah. kind of cohesiveness otherwise yeah i mean if, you, if everything's just panned to one side the whole mix your ear is just always listening to that side and it's going to sound weird but if, if you're creating like ear candy where things are bouncing between speakers and that kind of thing then that, that can also make it a little bit more exciting for the listener because their ears are getting pulled in different directions and in, in, in a pleasing exciting way yeah so and even mono is the 
kind of preferred listening these days. It feels like with all almost laptop speakers and Bluetooth speakers everywhere, I still put a lot of time into panning. Of course, it should work in mono as well, but a lot of space is created with panning for me, like balancing things over the stereo width. So mm -hmm. it's balancing up things in the left or right. It could be halfway, you know, it's, I spend a lot of time with that. Do you mix out. in mono at all? I do like one pass. Uh, I do like mono in one speaker. I just use one NS10 and do one pass just to make sure that it's nothing clashing or like the main things you want to hear, it's there and they are up front and the vocals are leveled and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So then in your opinion, what ultimately makes a great mix at the end of the day? Of course, like well-balanced both like volume-wise and frequency-wise. And to me, it's what makes the song better, if that makes sense. Of course. And, and at this, it's a little bit against each other, but I want it to be like a pleasant listening. But at the same time, I don't want, want it to be boring. It should be very interesting and standing out in some ways like so it keeps an interest like when you hear it, it's like even if some people think it sounds like shit i prefer that without any comments like ah it sounds like everything else you know it's like elevator music or what do you call it <laughs> like yeah it's wanted to catch the listeners in some ways hopefully the music it's enough to catch the listener but i think you need to do it in the mix as well like it goes with both mixing, producing, and songwriting to find the something special or like when you hear it, it's you're trying to be a little bit unique instead of sounding like everything else. So making the the mix like interesting to listen to for the listener. So it's I think that's what I find cool about like a good mix. And then it's, then it's also things when you get into detail, like uh, listening to this, I really love the vocal effects, you know, but that's more for me because I'm in this profession. Yeah. <laughs> like it's no one else going to care about, like they're going to hear, oh, the vocal sounds great in this song and they don't know why or whatever, you know. Yeah. No one's listening, thinking like, oh, they must have used that Valhalla plate reverb. At, yeah, uh, yeah you exactly. Know. <laughs> so I think it's what I'm listening for. When I hear a song, it's, I would also maybe say that it's a little bit not listening to the mix. For me, when I work with this, I want to be focusing on the song and maybe not the mix. But that's probably unique. It's because I'm a mixer myself. You know? But that it's, goes back to what you said earlier about the idea of just listening to the song from a fan's perspective. Yeah. And, and it makes sense. You have to detach yourself from the technical elements of your craft sometimes just to be able to hear like whether or not the song feels like a good song at the end of the day and as a at least especially as a producer i think that's the most challenging aspect of being because i'm when i do anything i'm producer and engineer i have assistant engineers drum techs and things like that but i'm do the engineering producing myself and as an engineer producer you're very much into details working on that sound or whatever you're gonna track and at the same time, as a producer, be able to zoom out and just listen as a listener. It's very hard when you do both. I think it's if you're only a producer and you have another engineer, it's way easier sitting in the couch, listening to the song and immediately going to hear like, ah, you don't even need to spend time on that. It's, it's not important for the song. Whilst when you're into the engineering at the same time and it's like, I really like this guitar sound. It's, now we, we got it. We spent three hours. It's amazing now. So let's track this part. And then in the end, it's like, we, didn't, we don't need that part. It was <laughs> good as it was. You know, it's, yeah. it's even better if you mute it. And if you were only the producer in the couch, you would, could have probably tell the band or the engineer or whatever that after five, ten minutes, 
Of course. Yeah, I think that that's why that like Rick Rubin approach to making records works where it's like he's not always in the studio, but that's that's because he walks in and he's like he can get that objective perspective of how the song sounds rather than knowing what they did, you know, how long they spent trying to get this tone or whatever. You yeah, know? it's just like <laughs> it either sounds good or it doesn't, you know, <laughs> and you have to you have some yeah feeling about it as well. You can just go in and say like, Maybe the singer spent a day and it's very proud of his vocals in that part. And you can't just go in and say like, ah, oh, this erase this vocal, they suck, re- rewrite them. Or you have to do it a little bit with feeling, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Maybe <laughs> guitar players or whatever. At least that's my approach. I don't, I don't think if they get hurt or like, I think they're not going to be as productive. So I think it's better to have a good vibe and just instead say like oh it's really good but i think you can do it even better you know it's i know you you know you have more in you yeah you definitely have to be tactful about it and be respectful of the musicians and you know i I like that approach of like i think you could do better it's just like it kind of fuels an ego need of like yeah i I can't be better than than like oh what i did sucks you know like it's very different very different perspective yeah (laughs) yeah awesome man well david i don't want to take up too much more of your time uh i I think you you gave us some amazing amazing insight into some of the records that you're working on and a lot of your processes um for people who might want to learn more about you follow you online or or even potentially work with you what's the best way for them to do that it's probably uh, like the website is now davidcastillo.se which is the swedish ending Uh, or you can go to instagram at ghost studio or you can check out like my studio that I run now, it's under the name Studio Grundal. It's maybe how you would pronounce it in English. Uh, I've seen uh, like hockey players and stuff. Maybe I have that same name in the end. <laughs> it's a Swedish name, but spelled with an HL, which is not normal in Sweden. But it's in, it's the area where I have the studio. Awesome. So you can go to that website and check out the, the drum room and like, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have links to the studio and everything in the show notes as well, so people can check that out too. All right, cool. Cool. Lastly, are there any cool projects that you're currently working on right now that you might be able to talk about? Not sure if I'm... uh, Probably, I'm not sure when you're going to release this. This will probably come out, uh, I believe, in like March. Yeah, then it's going to be fine, because I think they release like a trailer on Friday or whatever. Okay. It's been a a, a Soen. It's a Swedish band with a previous drummer from Opeth, his nice. band. And we recorded uh, for Christmas, like December, we recorded like a live session at the famous ABBA studio here in Stockholm. Very cool. So we had two days there and they did it with like uh, strings and choir and more like an acoustic version. So I'm just starting the mix right now. Did all the prep work and everything for it's a lot of work with those things for live stuff cleaning out tracks and preparing everything so now tomorrow i think i'm gonna start the actual mix that's awesome man well i'm looking forward to checking that out so that was my interview with david castillo and that was a great conversation i loved the way he broke down his process of shaping sounds right at the source and how he kind of just focuses on the most important elements of each mix and you know, it sounds like for him, a lot of times it's starting off with the foundational stuff like drums or bass or guitar, and then how he adds pads and strings into the mix by shaping those sounds and getting them right at the source, shaping them with EQ, finding the right sounds exactly to fit the context of the mix. I think that's something that's super important whenever you're working on arrangements and trying to make your mix sound as good as it can. It's not about getting the greatest sound on its own. It's always about getting the best sound for the mix and making everything work with all the other instruments in your song. So I love how he pointed that out. And it was also really great to hear his process with things like low end and how we managed to get the low end feeling right between kick and bass and how much he uses automation and some of his bass tone settings. I just really enjoyed hearing all of that kind of stuff. So I hope that you found that helpful and that it gave you a much better insight into some of the things you can be doing inside of your own mixes, especially if you're mixing some heavier music like David works on. 
So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, as always, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each week. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That's where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, I've got so many great resources right now to help you out with making, mixing, and recording your music easy. So definitely make sure to check that out, MasterYourMix.com. And while you're there, make sure to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. It was an Amazon number one bestselling book that breaks down the process of mixing, makes it super, super step-by-step. And inside, you're going to learn everything you need to know about what frequencies to boost and cut with EQ, where to be using compression, when to be using effects automation, and so much more. All you need to do is essentially just follow through the book, and it's going to teach you everything that you need to be paying attention to inside of your mix. And it's going to teach you everything you need to know about how to dial in the perfect settings for your particular songs. So once again, check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode, guys. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I can't wait to talk to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. Thank you.